0: Please enjoy your coffee and your morning with Dr. Verna Yu. Dr. Verna, it is yours.
1: Great. Thanks very much, Matt. And good morning to everyone. A pleasure to join you this morning. And I want to just thank Matt and Longwoods Publishing as well as all the sponsors mentioned uh, for this opportunity to speak with you today. So just moving on to the second slide, I want to begin by acknowledging that our work is conducted on the territories of Treaty 6, 7 and 8 and the homeland of the Métis. We also recognize the many different nations that come from all over Canada to call Alberta their home. We also acknowledge that many of you may be on different territories. We respect the treaties that were made on these territories. We acknowledge the harms and mistakes of the past and we dedicate ourselves to move forward in partnership with indigenous communities in the spirit of reconciliation and collaboration. So I really appreciate this national audience. And again, thank you to all of you for taking the time to be with us in this presentation. Uh, I think Matt's going to be the driver of my presentation, so just moving on to the next slide. Yeah. I'm going to tell you a little. Um, I'm just going to keep going, Matt, and you you can catch up with me. I think <laughs> uh, I'm on uh, slide three right now, but just I want to tell you a little bit about myself and the organization I lead. Uh, I think most of you know about Alberta Health Services, but you know, for those who do not, you know, I've been with Alberta Health Services uh, since 2012. In the last five years, as president and CEO. In my clinical life, I'm also a pediatric nephrologist, and I've trained both at the U of A in Edmonton, as well as at Harvard Children's Hospital in Boston. And I still maintain a practice at the Stollery Children's Hospital. Now, I can say it's really important for me to stay connected to the front lines. And while that's true in the fact that I care for children and youth with kidneys and with kidney diseases and their families, it's really because I love to do that, and that's why I went into healthcare. In fact, I wanted to be a pediatrician at the age of 12 for some weird reason, but um, it's what I've always wanted to do for my career, and I consider it more than just a profession. But I'm also immensely proud to be leading an organization called Alberta Health Services. So the next slide really shows you you know, what we are. We are Canada's first and largest province-wide healthcare system. As you know, most provinces in Alberta deliver healthcare through a different model, through multiple autonomous regional health authorities, providing healthcare services, and a specific part of the province all reporting to you know, the provincial government. We've been uh, one since 2009, when our nine health regions and three government agencies were merged into one health system, and we now serve about 4.4 million people uh, across, actually across Canada, because we actually extend and cover parts of BC as well as as far out east as Manitoba. The formation of AHS was widely considered the largest public merger in Canadian history. We have an organization with more than 100,000 employees, 10,000 plus physicians and about 15,000 volunteers. We have uh, over 100 hospitals, uh, 8,500 acute care beds, more than 27,000 continuing care spaces and an annual budget of over $15 billion. And with these resources, you can see all the different types of services uh, that we have that really spans the entire continuum of care. Uh, Furthermore, we've also integrated lab services into our health system operations through a fully uh, wholly owned subsidiary called Alberta Precision Labs. Um, Just moving on to the next slide. You know, we still have a lot of integration work ahead of us, but I'm really proud of how far we've come in a decade. We were named one of the world's top five most integrated healthcare systems in the world at the 18th International Congress of Integrated Medicine in the Netherlands a few years ago. And at that event, healthcare leaders from more than 40 countries recognized that AHS teams worked exceptionally well together, as well as with many partners and stakeholders. And this is a really welcome recognition from the international community. But as I mentioned, healthcare integration remains an ongoing work for HS. And it's really key for us for advancing our foundational um, strategies that is the core of our health and business plan. So moving on to the next slide, the quadruple aim, uh, which is based really on the balanced scorecard, means that everything that we do at HS needs to improve patient family experiences, improve patient population health outcomes, improve the experience and safety of our people, and obviously improve financial health and value for money. So integration is also embedded in the five streams of work within our organization's 10 year vision. So the next slide sort of goes over over the next decade, what we're looking to do. We're looking to fully leverage technology and innovation, placing a very strong focus on community-based addictions, mental health services, enhance the integration of primary care, offer more community-based care, and really empower Albertans to take greater responsibility for their health and use of the health system. Because fundamentally, at the end of the day, healthcare is really the accountability of everybody. Everybody has to take ownership and be part of the solution. We've made gradual progress on all five of these streams before the pandemic. And over the past 14 months, there has been accelerated growth and all five of these areas, and it's really been driven by the necessity. And I know that COVID-19 has put immense stress on health system across the world, Alberta included, and this pandemic, in my words, has really been relentless for all of us. Just moving on to the next slide. You know, the benefits of integration was really apparent for us in the very early days of the pandemic. Um, You know, we were able to really not only meet with our daily demands and challenges, we're able to actually collect and analyze data to really make evidence-informed decisions and policies that we can enact on province-wide quickly for the benefit of everyone. And as I mentioned, it really was critical for us very, very early days in the pandemic. So moving on to the next slide, for example, you know when we were thinking about procurement and supplies, and that was a big issue at the beginning of the pandemic, we actually started that planning months before we got our first case in Alberta on March the 5th. We had been looking at our data. We knew that the pandemic was coming globally. Uh, it was gonna hit Alberta at some point, And we knew that it was gonna be a big strain on especially our suppliers for PPE. Our team worked with our data and analytics portfolio to monitor stockpiles of PPE. We knew exactly how many masks we were using every single day in the province. And we knew that we had to up the, the inventory in order to supply the demand. And so we actually developed models that actually allowed us to predict what we felt were uh, gonna be our usage uh, based on the different scenarios, whether it was low scenario or whether it was the high scenario. We always wanted to make sure that we were ahead of the game when it came to supplies. And operating as a single health system, the province enabled us to move resources to areas of urgent need, such as uh, other areas, including COVID testing, contact tracing, and vaccinations. The next slide really shows what we were able to do when it came to lab testing. At the start of the pandemic, we were performing about 35, 35, 35 COVID tests per day, but we were quickly able to ramp up testing to a point where we are actually able to do more than 22,000 tests per day. Overall, we've been able to complete more than 4 million tests on 2 million people. This includes more than 100,000 rapid tests completed since last December to screen workers in our long-term care and supportive living facilities as well as schools and other areas of risk of transmission. And in fact, we've now gone to more than a million of these rapid tests that have been distributed to these areas. Our next slide shows how our integrated lab services played a large role in this, as did our ability to redeploy staff to establish and operate more than 70 assessment centers across the province that could manage mass COVID testing. It's one thing to be able to do 22,000 tests uh, in a lab setting, but it's another to say that we actually had to do 22,000 swabs throughout the province. Uh, Similarly, we started the pandemic with 50 contact tracers, that's five zero, but by redeploying human and financial resources, our contact tracing team has now expanded 50 fold and we now have over 2,500 people and we're able to investigate based on different service models, um, different staffing models up to about 4,900 cases per day. We're also ramping up our immunization efforts, including the establishment of rapid flow clinics, in many of our cities. Lately, we have been immunizing along with pharmacies and physician offices of up to 40,000 people per day. So we have the supplies in place. We are actually able to immunize all of Albertans who wanna be immunized within this matter of weeks. To date, about a third of all adult Albertans have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine and more and more Albertans are gonna become more eligible uh, over this next week. So I have to say that I'm really, really proud. When I look back over the past year and a half, and realize how much we've achieved under stressful, ever-changing circumstances, and how much COVID has forced us to change how we deliver healthcare and change it for the better. When we take a minute to review this changing landscape, we can start to see what the future of healthcare will look like and how we might deliver care differently because healthcare post-pandemic is going to be different whether we like it or not, and it is going to be sustained. And so what I'd like to focus on for the remainder of our time is what's going to be about the future. So moving on to the next slide, I'm gonna start with virtual healthcare because that's obviously first um, top of mind for every healthcare system in the country. Providing and receiving healthcare through virtual means remotely through the use of technology is nothing new at AHS. In fact, we've actually used virtual care since day one to support individuals who are in self-isolation, unable to attend an AHS clinic or facility, living in rural and remote areas, or when the patient and provider cannot be in the same location. But as we all know, with the pandemic, virtual health has exploded since its onset in terms of usage, but also in terms of its application and its role in our pandemic response. It's really been significant. So, for starters, virtual care has really helped ease the impact of some of the restrictions implemented because of the pandemic. Moving on to the next slide, which gives you a bit of data about what actually has changed before and after. The restrictions on social distancing significantly decreased in-person clinical visits, which is accompanied by an unprecedented increase in virtual care volumes. Our preliminary data shows that, for example, in Edmonton area alone, well over 50,000 virtual visits a month, including telephone contacts, took place during the first few months of the pandemic. This number is significant because in 2019, the AHS virtual health program had a total of approximately 60,000 point-to-point virtual video visits for the entire year. And even then, when we extrapolate this to the impact on patients, it actually helped to avoid more than 11 million kilometers of travel for patients in that year. That's the equivalent of traveling around uh, the Earth's equator 275 times. Early data also demonstrates that more than half of physicians and allied health professionals conducted virtual appointments after April 2020. And at its peak, 90% of all ambulatory visits in some clinical areas were done virtually. The clinical priority for using virtual tools to connect patients and provider was initially identified as ambulatory care visits that were postponed or canceled due to physical distancing directives. Since then, HS Virtual Health has supported many clinics, programs, including addictions and mental health, chronic disease management, infectious disease, and home hospitals to increase the number of virtual clinic visits and keep patients closer to home. Next slide. One result of the pandemic is that for all of us, we're very familiar with Zoom and it has been an indispensable tool for AHS virtual care. As we know, Zoom video conferencing, as shown by today, is a very easy to use platform, accessible on most computers, mobile devices, and extends access to patients' homes. We have provided clinical teams to support to integrate Zoom into complex clinical service delivery models. And since March 2020, we have more than 27,000 active users with 10,000 host licenses. Our usage includes more than 500,000 unique meetings, 103 million meeting minutes, 2.1 million meeting participants, and 1,200 webinars with more than 435,000 participants. We also have separate Zoom subaccount for COVID family visitation with more than 400,000 minutes of usage over the past 10 months by either iPad and Zoom. And as I mentioned, Zoom is being used clinically, To include cases where clinics may be provincial or zonal and involve interdisciplinary teams where they have high volumes or where they provide care to vulnerable patient populations. Other clinical usage uh, areas and benefits, access to physician and other healthcare professionals, increased visual information and assistance, developing the therapeutic relationship between clinician and patients, and minimized exposure risk to clinicians and patients. In addition, the HS Virtual Health Program has developed numerous self-study and guidance tools, most of which were for clinicians and which support safe and effective high-quality care delivery during COVID. And without a doubt, the pandemic has catalyzed a lot of growth and activity in the whole area of virtual care. According to a survey that we completed in late summer, 94% of respondents intended to continue to use virtual care permanently, which indicates that the accelerated rollout was well-executed and well-received, And it would be fair to say that in another sense, it simply helped accelerate a shift that was already occurring from AHS facility-based care to community-centered care, an initiative that we call enhancing care in the community. So moving on to the next slide, I wanna talk a little about a community care because this is what we've heard from Albertans. They want community-centered care in Alberta. Uh, It means about moving services out of our busy hospitals and into community settings when it is safe to do so. The next slide really gives an idea to Albertans about how they can access uh, more community-based services to keep them healthy and out of hospital. Because at the end of the day, if you need to be in a hospital, that's great, but who wants to be in a hospital if you don't need to be? We can get them home sooner because there'll be more supports for them near where they live. The Concept is not new or unique. And we know that many of you in health systems across Canada and the world are really shifting the focus to deliver more care to people in their communities. One of the things that we've been doing, for example, is expanding our virtual hospital care and digital remote monitoring services for patients who can safely receive acute care in their homes. And the next slide shows you a picture about this. In response to the pandemic, we actually approved the expansion of what we had already started, which is a virtual care concept in our virtual hospitals established in 2018. These include a complex care hub in Calgary and the Edmonton Zone Virtual Hospital. Both of which use digital remote patient monitoring to collect patient data that informs clinical decision making. And what you're seeing on this slide is something called Hospital at Home, which is run out of a children's hospital in Calgary and provides chemotherapy to pediatric cancer patients in their home. Remote patient monitoring enables patients with more complex health conditions and those recovering from surgery to be monitored and safely receive acute care at home rather than in hospital. These virtual hospital services reduce avoidable bricks and mortar hospitalizations for patients. They also support patients with COVID-19 in monitoring their disease progression. Patients can be proactively directed to acute care before they decompensate with the hope of improving their outcomes in hospital. Virtual hospitals provide patients with the opportunity to collaborate with their primary care providers and also connect them with community resources um, to help them be well and stay well in the community. Stable patients, it's like they're being admitted into a hospital, but they're actually remaining at home. They can have their medications titrated, IV medications can be delivered, vital signs are monitored regularly. Diagnostic imaging tests can be completed all while receiving up to twice daily check-ins with a care team. And these include patients who have been otherwise in an acute care bed. In the next slide, um, we're really talking about these healthcare teams receiving information by digital remote patient monitoring. They can also connect with patients via telephone, text messaging, email or video. Virtual hospitals also leverage existing supports in the community, such as home care teams. We have specially trained paramedics who can perform treatments and diagnostics that were previously performed in a hospital environment. And the result is that we can safely manage patients who remain in their homes, reducing the risk of exposure, improving system efficiency, which is particularly important during a pandemic where safety and creating acute care capacity are so essential. Edmonton's virtual hospital and Calgary's complex care hub seem custom made for a pandemic response. And they've both been relied upon to provide additional care. Both programs cared for about 296 patients in 2019-20. That number has jumped to 530 over the past fiscal year representing nearly 80% increase in the numbers of adult patients who receive high quality care from a multidisciplinary team, all from the comfort of their own home. If you think about it, that's a good size acute care hospital. Virtual care has expanded in many different areas during our pandemic. For example, many of our health promotion and educational workshops have also moved online. Those supporting a range of needs such as quitting smoking, living with a chronic health condition or eating well for health and weight. Uh, In the next slide, talking a bit about virtual tools, we're also using virtual tools to provide new avenues for care in the areas of addictions and mental health. I just wanna share some of this with you. Text for Hope is a free text messaging service that gives people advice and encouragement to help them develop healthy personal coping skills and resiliency. Together All offers a clinically moderated online peer-to-peer mental health community that empowers individuals to anonymously seek and provide 24/7 care. HeartMath provides online Zoom workshops to help people identify, and manage stress in these challenging times. And the Virtual Opioid Dependency Program uses a completely virtual clinic model to connect a doctor-led multidisciplinary team with clients referred for opioid agonist therapy such as methadone. In short, virtual care is meeting the needs of patients in a big way, in a different way, and adding new levels of convenience and service. In the next slide leads me to speak to the area of digital health, which is part and parcel of virtual care. Digital health and virtual care may sound similar, but with digital health, we often think more in terms of the things that make virtual care possible, such as devices that measure patient vitals and send back to care providers, or patient record portals that empower patients to take charge of their health, or health information systems that provide predictive analytics for planners and care providers. And the tools that we think of in digital health are key requirements in the provision of virtual care. So moving on to the next slide, I wanna talk about something called Connect Care, which I'm very, very proud of. It is our provincial electronic medical record system. It is the biggest IT project in our organization's history. We've launching it in phases, nine of them to be exact. Uh, We've launched the first three waves of which two of the waves happened during the pandemic, all of them successful. And the last phase is scheduled for 2023. As I mentioned, the first phase was launched in 2019. It's worth noting, as I mentioned, that the next two phases have occurred and we're now planning for phase four. four. And that's how important this project is to AHS. We remain, if it wasn't for the pandemic, we'd remain on time, although we're only a few months delayed and we remain on budget. But this is about how we deliver care now and into the post-pandemic area. So in the next slide, I just wanna talk a little bit more about Connect Care. Connect Care is gonna be pivotal to providing a common record of care, such that virtual can complement in-person care within the spectrum and continuum of the patient journey. Connect Care will create create opportunities to meet the needs of patients, modernize care delivery, and determine how best to deliver virtual care in a complementary way that optimizes the overall health experience that enhances system efficiency and improves access. It will give a patient's healthcare team a more complete picture of their health history, access to consistent information on best practices, resources at their fingertips and will enable them to communicate with patients and each other more easily. It is a move away from an out-of-day system that in many circumstances in, continues to rely on paper records and notes to a sophisticated, integrated, comprehensive system that allow patients to be at the center of their healthcare team and for them to interact not only with their own healthcare information, with their healthcare clinicians. Unless clinician sees all of the patient's HS health record in one place, it's safer for patients, will lead to improve patient care, and will help our frontline teams do what they do best, which is provide effective expert and timely care to Albertans. Moving on to the next slide, Connect Care allows patients, as I said, who have been seen at a location with Connect Care in place to access a patient portal called MyHS Connect. This is the online patient tool, which is part of Connect Care. It allows patients to see the results, interaction with their care team to have questions, and concerned rest, be involved in their care, and manage their health information. And together with My Health Record, which is the Alberta government service that gives patients secure access to their health information, Albertans have never been more empowered when it comes to their own health. Once registered, Albertans have at their fingertips immunization records, prescribed medications, lab test results. Connect Care gives care providers easy but secure access to all of that information, which will be available from facility to facility no matter which service that you're at. it is an investment in the health of Albertans and once in place, we are gonna see a return on investment in both health outcomes and dollars. Anticipated savings will be through improved coordination of patient care, controlling drug costs by making it easier to access patient medication history, easier to use generic instead of brand name drugs, reducing duplicate and unnecessary testing and reducing medical record and transcription costs. And although we've completed only a third of our nine phase launches, Connect Care has already been an invaluable tool during the pandemic. The system has supported our contact tracing efforts, which in turn has helped us respond to the pandemic and most recently the surge in cases in Alberta. It has also enhanced our ability to provide virtual health services. And as I mentioned earlier, which have been greatly needed during the course of COVID-19. I wanna move on now to uh, the next slide, which is about continuing care, because we know that this has been uh, a system that has really been shown to be, I think one that needs to be improved upon across the country. Our robots data systems are also being used to manage and track our audits of continuing care settings across the province, both private and those operated by AHS. And to be clear, these audits were performed pre-pandemic. <clears throat> in fact, we audited about 180 continuing care sites in 2019, but with the pandemic, we changed our auditing approach and significantly ramped up our visits. So the routine audits were audited and we were replaced by several different types of visits. Uh, going to the next slide, uh, our safe, healthy environments team performed eight COVID-19 readiness visits with all containment care sites starting in early May of 2020 and were completed as a blitz the following month. These involved in visiting more than 450 sites across the province where we have contracts for long-term care, what we call designated supportive living, personal care homes and lodges. And subsequently two other types of visits were performed Last year we performed nearly 220 site preparedness assessment visits to determine whether sites are, would be ready should they have an outbreak. We also developed a risk assessment for these sites. So that if the risk assessment showed a site is at moderate or high risk of not being well prepared for an outbreak, then they were put on the list for a quality monitoring visit. These are more in-depth site reviews that focus not only on pandemic-related considerations, such as infection prevention and control but also quality of care. These quality monitoring visits were triggered by a variety of factors including a site having an outbreak but also by complaints or other mechanisms where a site can be flagged and we completed 706 of these visits last fiscal year. We're continuing with the same approach for this year although thank goodness we're seeing less transmission and continuing care due in part to full immunization of those in those settings and other measures that we've put in place as part of our comprehensive strategy to protect this most vulnerable population. The next slide shows a bit about the strategy, and the strategy that we have developed also involves setting up guidance for sites on how to recognize symptoms that might be suggestive of October 19th, providing guidance on what sort of PPE to use, under which circumstances, and how to manage physical distancing, and again, working with the sites to establish visitation measures, and then working with our health foundations to support virtual methods for families to spend time with their loved ones. We've also set up a toll-free number 24-7 that continuing care facilities can actually call in to report a resident who's showing symptoms of influenza or COVID-like symptoms. This activates a coordinated COVID-19 response team focused on minimizing spread and providing additional support to the site, including protocols, staffing, resident assessments, required PPE and rapid tracing and testing of close contacts where required. Again, the introduction of these new services and expansion of existing ones came together within days and weeks of the first COVID-19 case in Alberta and provides further evidence that with focus and urgency, health systems and even large systems like us can manage effectively evidence informed change quickly and nimbly. The next area I wanna just comment a bit about is wait times, because we know that the burden uh, from the pandemic is that wait times are gonna be getting worse and worse. And for all of us, we've had to postpone, uh, rebook uh, surgeries and other areas, chronic disease management, and that there is gonna be a pent up demand uh, for not just surgeries, but also diagnostic services. Uh, that's because we've had to deal with the pandemic. Uh, in the next slide, for instance, since the start of COVID-19, there's been a continuing decrease in the number of new cancers being diagnosed in Alberta. And I know that's a trend that's been reported across Canada and the world uh, before the pandemic, approximately 2,000 Albertans were diagnosed with cancer each month. And based on that number, we believe there are approximately 500 people each month who are not being diagnosed for cancer during this pandemic. And obviously our concern is when they actually eventually reach the healthcare system, the cancer would advance to such a later stage require more treatment, uh, reduce the likelihood of a positive outcome and place more demand on themselves as well as the health system. Earlier this year, we launched a public education campaign telling Albertans that the healthcare system is safe to use and that they should come to see us if they think there's something wrong with their health. In the next slide talk a little bit more about surgeries, because I know that's obviously been a big concern for all of us in the healthcare system. From the previous year, surgical uh, teams who've supported surgical activities, uh, now we, knew, we know how many surgeries we've done, which is about 291,000 surgeries in year 18-19. And for the previous fiscal year, our surgical teams have managed to support, on average, about 90% of pre-COVID levels, which is really quite amazing. Uh, on we went to a low of only doing 40 percent of all surgeries in the spring of last year to actually doing 200 percent above anticipated surgical levels because we just didn't close uh, so we know it's going to be a tremendous uh, demand uh, we're very proud of what we managed to keep up but we also mean that this 10% adds to a backlog that is once again growing as we come to the third wave we've developed a Uh, Alberta's uh, surgical recovery plan, which is designed to increase access to surgeries across the province. This plan is actually part of a larger surgical initiative that we've developed prior to the pandemic to ensure that all Albertans receive scheduled surgeries within clinically appropriate wait times. As part of the Alberta surgical initiative, uh, we are chartering um, surgeries out to what we call chartered surgical facilities uh, that are being used to add capacity in addition to the publicly funded surgeries. We're working now with uh, new private health partners to actually get more surgeries done. Um, last year for these charter surgical facilities, we did about 44,000 surgeries, which is about 15% of our, as I said, our 290,000 uh, surgeries. And we are now adding thousands more. They provide safe, low-risk surgeries without cost to patients. These remain publicly funded, but it really allows us within the hospital system to focus on more emergent and more complex surgeries. As part of our surgery recovery plan, we're looking to increase the volume of surgeries, as I mentioned, but we also need to change the processes by which these surgeries come to existence. During the pandemic, we are centralizing booking for surgeries across the province, which allows for equitable access to limited available operating room time. As a result of this practice during the pandemic, we actually saw wait times decrease for some patient groups and greater equity in operating room distribution time across the system. In a central access and triage model, we found a single entry model improves efficiencies, is a fair and ethical way to address the pent-up demand for surgery and the presence of constrained resources. As for diagnostic imaging, each zone manages these services centrally because geographically you can imagine how challenging it is for a single queue. And however, should patients inquire about DI waitlists, for example, in other geographies, they also have the ability to travel for exam, we're also able to make that option available for patients. So it is about patient choice. Additional work is underway on utilization exams with a goal that wait times within each zone are essentially the same throughout the province. We're also able to manage these patients' cues more effectively as connect care becomes more integrated into our day-to-day work. And we believe the time is right to move to a central intake and triage for many services, not just surgery and diagnostic imaging, but post-pandemic as well. And in our experience, this approach provides, as I mentioned, equity, consistency, appropriateness of interventions, and allows for comparability of outcomes, provides better value and help us reduce wait times for services that were de-accelerated during the pandemic. So I'm coming to the end uh, in conclusion, next slide. Maybe it's just the way that we're wired, but when we think about the pandemic and all the loss that we've experienced, all the illness, the isolation, the sorrow, the stresses, I really wanna know that there's been something good that's come out, something tangible and sustainable that will come out of this pandemic. It's not a silver lining, it's not a rainbow, just something good. I have to say that I've never been so proud of Alberta Health Services and how we responded to the global health crisis. We follow the evidence, we've acted quickly and nimbly and I believe that as a learning healthcare organization, we can take the innovations and quality improvements developed during this crisis and applying them in a post pandemic era. And this is not just true of Alberta Health Services, but I'm sure for all of you that work in healthcare systems, we've all been stress tested, We've all been pushed to our limits. We've all had our plans and assumptions challenged, sometimes on a daily, even an hourly basis. And if we've assessed how we've performed and do so honestly, we can emerge from this time with better ways to deliver care that deliver improved outcomes, patient experiences, more efficiently and more cost effectively. And I hope that many years from now, when we look back at this terrible time, we don't just think about the loss of life and the societal toll that's taken, although the scope of all of that is unimaginable. But I hope we can recognize the heroism of our teams and our people, the sacrifices that they've made, how they rose to the challenge of the pandemic, but also how they laid the groundwork for creating healthcare system truly designed for the 21st century, and did so during a time of immense upheaval and anxiety. How these changes conceived and implemented during a time of crisis, simply became a better way of doing things once the crisis subsided. If that happens, and I think it will, and I know it will, Canadians will all have something good and lasting that comes out of this horrific pandemic. So last, I just thank you for your time your attention. I Hope we'll have lots of time for questions. Please know that, you know, because I've really been focused on Alberta's response to the pandemic, I'm looking forward to hearing from any of you from across Canada about your experiences and observations. Happy to hear your comments. Uh, take your questions and thank you so much for your attention. Um, so I'm, I think I'm going to manage the questions and answers, I'll try to take a look at that and uh, see what how many I can get through and clearly again if there's uh, anything uh, um, I'm missing, uh, please don't hesitate to put in there. So the first question is from Aria and the question is about how to implement the health line, health line to elder people with poor skills of using gadgets. So. Um, Absolutely true. You know, when we were looking at the online tools that we used for the virtual care visits in the long-term care facilities, obviously it was with the staff or the help of the staff. Uh, Many of the um, elderly residents obviously are not able to go online uh, to do that. So it was actually with assistance uh, in doing that. Um, In terms of uh, other... Uh, help for the staff uh, for the ones that have been in acute care hospitals again similar things we would get our staff actually to help them if they were unable to do so on their own so um, that's how so at the end of the day they do need help um, and not everybody was able to take up on the virtual care aspects for sure and there is a gap and it's not just actually for this elderly but if you think about some of the more vulnerable populations who may not have access to online tools uh, you know or if you think about our homeless um, Uh, populations, again, you know there are gaps in the system and you know we're hopefully trying to uh, do more of that, but they do need assistance. In terms of the funding model for individual healthcare providers to sign up. um, So for Zoom uh, AHS we just bought the additional licenses, uh, so there is no cost to the users of the AHS Zoom system as long as you're within AHS, if you're an AHS physician uh, that provides care in our facilities then you do have complete access and there is no cost uh, to them. Uh, There actually was built in a virtual care fee for service code for physicians. And so that actually has been now made permanent uh, amongst uh, physician uh, compensation codes. So that was a model that was used, but for all other technology, um, Alberta Health Services has been uh, funding that. Um, The other question uh, is about the AHS rollout. Is there any evidence of improvement in patient outcomes in terms of hospitalizations and medical errors? Um, uh, I would say that, um, so I'm assuming that this question is related to since AHS was formed back in 2009. And so um, we actually have a provincial online reporting learning system. Uh, So for example, uh, we used to fill out critical incident reports. I remember that when I was doing that as a resident, as a staff member early on, uh, before AHS days, and these were pre forms, right? You would fill out on the unit and if there was a medical error, you'd fill it out and it gets sent somewhere else. We actually have had an online tool now for uh, many, many years, actually for almost 10 years. where we actually uh, monitor our adverse events um, on a monthly basis. And it does actually get reported up to our quality and safety committee as well as to our board uh, quality and safety committee. So we're actually able to monitor uh, all the adverse events, uh, how many um, are never events as an example. And so one of the things though is that because these are voluntary, does having more reports mean that the system is getting worse? Well, I would say that uh, having more reports is actually a good thing because that means that people are actually using the system, feel safe to use the system and actually are uh, you know, feel that it's you can learn from it by putting things into the system. So for sure, there is no worsening of hospitalizations or medical errors. And in fact, we've actually shown that we prevented medical errors from theming some of these adverse events or um, um, reports because some of the adverse events that are reported are things that have not yet happened. So for example, um, I'll, I'll use something like medications, you know, uh, reports may be put into the system that highlights that one medication um, is now being uh, packaged very similarly to another one. And one of them actually turned out to be epinephrine. Uh, Several reports are put into our reporting online reporting system. Uh, We pulled that out, we actually were able to pull out, oh, well, this actually doesn't look good. We actually developed a safety um, uh, report from that. We actually notified the manufacturer uh, we actually put out uh, notices for our teams and we actually prevented errors from happening. So I think that if anything, uh, our learning system that we put in for reporting America errors and actually make things better for us. Connect Care is gonna be really fundamental for us to be able to look at clinical outcomes. And so we're, once we roll out Connect Care completely in the system, we are now gonna have an ability to be able to use all of the clinical information Link it to with clinical outcomes, and really have uh, a very strong ability to have data that is going to be much more meaningful to help inform how we how we actually uh, make decisions. Uh, next question is about you know Alberta having high COVID positivity rate in terms of high contact tracing. Well, I'm not sure if I can answer that from <laughs> I think from a from an Albertan perspective. I think part of the challenge uh, for us right now is really related to. Um, some social gatherings. Uh, The two areas with the biggest case uh, rate right now is in Fort McMurray where we actually have a lot of uh, work camps We have a lot of people that fly in from out of the country. Uh, And so we do have spread amongst the work camps and we're working quite closely with the work camps right now to help them reduce the spread as well as having targeted immunization uh, program for them. The other area that's actually quite high is in Banff And everybody in Canada knows Banff, but again, you know, Banff, we get a lot of visitors. And so, again, um, we think that we've, um, you know, and also it's a very transient population. It's a young population. And same for Fort McMurray. It's a relatively young population. And really, our vaccine rollout, we're just getting to that younger age group right now. Although, as I said, we're actually doing specific campaigns out for that group. And, you know, I, I have to say that, you know, we have a faction of Albertans who are not complying with, you know, our chief medical officer of health orders. And, you know, those orders work. It's about masking, it's about physical distancing, it's about reducing your social interactions and uh, limiting the gatherings. And, you know, if people complied, uh, you know, I don't think we would be in the state that we are right now. Um, the backlog to plan capacity, there's a lot of unknown demand about patients not seeking primary care and um, absolutely true we're actually doing uh, one of the really great things that we developed during the pandemic is we set up something called our scientific advisory group. It's actually co led by our associate chief medical officer who leads our strategic clinical network, as well as one of our academic uh, clinicians from the University of Alberta and this uh, scientific advisory group has been doing incredible reviews for us based on the latest evidence. I mean, you know, evidence is changing almost on a daily basis. So when we have questions, for example, you know, use of N95s uh, amongst, uh, you know, non aerosolized, um, you know, settings, you know, we are getting a lot of pressure about, you know, expanding the use of N95s. And so, you know, this group, you know, looked at the evidence, came out with the evidence and we use that um, to inform our decisions. Uh, and what they're doing with us right now is actually doing a, a fault, a report with us, for us, about what exactly is the backlog, we actually know what the backlog is, for surgeries, it's easy enough to do that. Um, you know, we had, for example, in Alberta, we had a, you know, we are challenged with our waitlist, no question about that. Pre pandemic, it was about 68,000 people we had on a waitlist, about 50% of it were actually in window 50% out of window. Um, At the peak of, I think, one of the waves, we went up to as high as Uh, 77,000. When we relaunched our services in the fall of last year, we actually were able to reduce that wait list. We got down to 70,000, which is pretty close to pre-pandemic numbers. And now with wave three, we've actually gone up again. So surgery, we have a good sense of the backlog. I think your point about primary care, chronic disease, which is we're very concerned about you know, cancer. We can guesstimate against the backlog, but all of that is is um, things that we know that we need to sort of prepare for. We know um, the ED visits, for example. We actually have a good sense of uh, what's been missing in ED. What we've seen in the reduction in the emergency room is really uh, around sort of primarily the C task fours and fives have actually stopped coming. You know, they're they're probably going to the primary care physician or they're not coming at all. And the reality is, is that that's, that's okay, the C task fours and fives and, you know, the CTAS ones and twos are the ones that we don't want to avoid the emergency room. And we do know based on some of the cardiac outcomes data that, um, you know, that they're not doing as well, right? So they're less likely to come in, uh, they, they delay their time. So the outcomes for uh, myocardial infarctions are not as good during the pandemic era. And then you know let's let's not forget about the opioid crisis that we have across the country, and the devastation that that's had during the pandemic. We've had almost double the amount of opioid deaths in Alberta over the last year as opposed to uh, the year before, and so that is another area that we're very very concerned about. In terms of new financial models to supporting our quadruple aim, one of the things that we did a few years ago was really look at. Um, really get down to the nitty-gritty about why is Alberta more expensive, right? I mean, everybody talks about Alberta's healthcare being the most expensive, and then there'll be comments about mediocre outcomes and why are we paying for all of this. Well, the reality is is that 70% of our costs are fixed costs. You know, they're labor costs. We are a people business, and we all know for decades, Alberta was a really good place to come to. Financially, uh, we are seen as paying the most, not just in healthcare, but in every other jurisdiction. And so, if you think about that fixed cost of, you know, um, labor cost, when we looked at the remaining 30%, there's other things that Albertans have, um, uh, previous Albertan governments have invested in. You know, we've, we as a, as a, as an Albertan, we've put more money into healthcare to. We provide more care. There are other there are things that we pay for in Alberta that other provinces don't fund. We have more care hours. As I said, you know the bundle of care that we provide is more. We have more teaching hospitals uh, compared to other jurisdictions. Teaching hospitals are more expensive to run. And so when we look at the actual things that we have levers to actually maneuver and change, one of the big initiatives that we've done is called operational best practices. It's essentially benchmarking ourselves, not just internally, Within the province, but also externally with like hospitals. So we have benchmarked ourselves. So for example, the University of Alberta Hospital, which is a tertiary hospital, we benchmarked ourselves against other hospitals like UHN and you know in Toronto or uh, you know uh, Vancouver General, perhaps in, in Vancouver. So we benchmarked ourselves against other like hospitals and looked at the worked hours, some of the other programs, and said, you know, what is it? That we can reduce our what what's our quartile in our hospitals in terms of the units uh, of work you know and the additional services and what can we what can we manage to bring down, uh, making sure that quality of care is always maintained right at the fundamentally quality and safe care is never ever jeopardized for this, and so OBP we rolled out back in about 2016 and you know the EUI review we had an NHS review uh, when the UCP government took. Um, uh, came in place and the, you know, EUI review, the Ernst & Young group, I mean, this is what they tell many other jurisdictions to do when they go in and and they were really quite impressed with how far advanced we are. And just to let everybody know that since 2016, when we started this work, you know, we've saved about $220 million in the system. Uh, we don't broadcast this. Uh, there's been no job, you know, no job losses as a result of this. It's fundamentally trying to benchmark and get us down to, to, you um, Uh, lower hours to care and actually there was quite a lot of significant savings also within our procurement and the way that we manage our inventory and supplies. Um, So hopefully answers some of that um, about the new financial models but I would say COVID is going to actually get us to new service models of care also so it's not just about financial models. I fundamentally believe that the way that we provide care is actually going to be different and that actually is going to influence our financials going forward. I don't know, Matt, how much more time do I have going through
0: questions? That's it, we're done. So um, just very quickly then, there were a a fair number of questions that we didn't get an opportunity to address today. I will take the questions and the comments and I will forward them uh, to Verna and her team. And then we'll see what other opportunities we may have uh, to address those in the future. Uh, It it is so important for us to uh, learn from each other, share our knowledge and have regular discussions. So I can't thank you enough for joining us this morning. Uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, This would be the time that everybody would be applauding, but um, hopefully they are online. Um, Our next event should uh, be available for registration in uh, the next week or so. We will be joined by uh, Jennifer Zellner, the uh, President and CEO for um, Healthcare Excellence Canada. Other than that, everybody have a fantastic rest of your day. Take care and enjoy. Bye bye. Thank
1: you.